0: Ray spoke before the first anthem on the the hymn, the anthem was on spirit and truth. And that is the shape of the sermon, which I'll say more about before I begin the sermon in just a few moments. But I have two very reasonably brief scripture passages, both of which speak to truth and God's truth. And I will draw a distinction between our truth and God's in the context of the sermon but this first one is from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the psalmist, and the second one comes from the Gospel of John, just as the Anthem text did as well. The psalmist, speaking of truth, wrote, Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God with my exceeding joy, and I will praise you at the harp, O God, my God. The second passage from the 16th chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks of the spirit and of truth. He said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, the truth will guide you into all the truth, for it will not speak of its own, but will speak whatever it hears, and it will declare to you the things that are to come. The truth will glorify me, because it will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now let me preface the sermon before I begin with an understanding that this is an unusually shaped sermon. It's about 75% background and context, and only near the end do I get to what you might think of as the preaching. And I'll also tell you that it was prompted by a lot of soul searching over the past couple of weeks, actually months, as I knew 2020 was approaching. Because 18 years ago, I know it's an odd number, but I'll explain it in the sermon. 18 years ago, I was engaged in what was a profoundly um, noble, troubling, and tender experience. I served as a juror on a murder trial. And as I said, I've been thinking about that experience a lot over the past few weeks, because it was a search for truth. It was a search for truth that was our truth as a jury, and also, in a sense, a glimpse of what God's truth might be. Well, will you pray with me? May the words in my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be offered humbly and faithfully. Amen. In the 19th century American literature masterpiece, Moby Dick, Herman Melville attempts to describe the unchanging nature of God's truth. He does it by using, in the story of Moby Dick, the minister and a sermon. And the minister bases his sermon on the story from the Old Testament of Jonah and the whale. And the minister says that God's truth, and they were a seafaring story, right? So he uses a ship's analogy. That God's truth is like the lamp that swings in a cabin in a ship that is screwed into the ceiling. The truth always hangs straight and true. However, when you sail, It is the cabin that is constantly tilting to that lamp. And when the cabin tilts, it looks as if the truth is askew, but it always hangs straight and true. It is our needs, our perspectives, our lives that are constantly tilting. I mean, to me, that's a remarkable image of truth that it always hangs true as if it is a carpenter's plumb line. But it's our contexts, our perspectives, our needs that are constantly shifting. Truth has been searched for thousands of years, right? Even in ancient Greek, the word truth literally means to make obvious that which is hidden. But for the past few hundred years, since the Enlightenment, we have been told not to confuse truth with facts. They're different. In fact, I would say there are no facts to be made obvious. There are simply interpretations of facts because our cabin, our lives, our hearts, are always being tilted by our needs. Well, it was the summer of 2002 that 12 of us were thrown together in the pursuit of truth. As I said, we were jurors on a murder trial. Part of our task, of course, was to interpret the facts and to seek what would be an imperfect truth. And for six days, by the way, I've been told that's an exceedingly long murder trial. They're usually two or three days long. For six days, the 12 of us pursued the truth and frankly, Frankly, the pursuit of truth is a lot like they say about making laws and sausages. It's not very pretty. So let me set the background. It began, of course, many of you have experienced this, with jury selection. I was seated in the jury room with 400 other folk at 26th in California, and I knew the odds were that I would be sent home after lunch, of course with my $17.13 check. That would have been fine, fine by me. But just after lunch, as it sometimes happens, they randomly called numbers, they lined us up, took us into a courtroom, and there they began to select a jury. It took the rest of the afternoon. The judge stated up front that if any of you have any religious objections to the death penalty, this is not a capital case. I would have elected out of that, as I do. But I couldn't. It wasn't a capital case. One by one, the potential jurors were asked questions, right? We were asked about what we read, what we watch on television, and one of the questions I'll never forget is, have you ever been the victim of a person-to-person crime or have you ever been accused of a crime? And I remember starting to keep track and being stunned that 70 percent of the people answered yes they had either been a victim of a person-to-person crime or accused i've tried to remember ever since then how lucky i am to live in a reasonably safe basically crime-free community there were some memorable moments i mean jury selection is a slice of life And I learned that if one does not wish to do one's duty as a citizen, you can pretty easily get off a jury by being, well, overtly prejudiced. One woman was asked the question, every potential juror was asked, will you be and are you able to be an impartial juror? And I kid you not, she looked at the defendant and said, no, I'd convict him now without a trial. She was dismissed. I assumed, because the selection process was nearly over, that I wasn't even going to be questioned, let alone chosen. 11 of the jurors had been picked. My name was called to sit in the jury box, and they asked questions of me. And in retrospect, I realized that my answers canceled one another out. The state's attorney, who prosecutes the case on the state's behalf, or our behalf, and the public defender, who is defending the accused, were most interested, the judge later told us, not only in what we read, but what we watched on TV. They asked me what I read. I said, I read the New Yorker and the Wall Street Journal. They asked my profession, I'm a Christian pastor. The public defender wanted to keep me because I read the New Yorker and I was a pastor and thought I would be merciful. On the other hand, I have a very good friend who used to be a state's attorney said, the fact that you said you also read the Wall Street Journal, the state's attorney liked that. And then the judge told us afterwards this little secret that it's really what you watch on tv that they're listening to back then there was a show called csi which was a crime show and and at the end all of the forensic evidence would come wrapped together in a beautiful little package it was perfectly put together it's never like that in a case and so if you watched csi the state's attorney would ask that you'd be dismissed because it never really happens that way however The defense attorney would ask for you to be dismissed if you were a regular watcher of America's Most Wanted. Much to my chagrin, I was chosen. And the next day as we, the jury, walked anxiously and nervously into the courtroom and into the jury box, everyone was standing. The judge, the bailiffs, the attorneys, the families on both sides, the victims and the defendants' families, We walked into the jury box and remained standing ourselves. The judge instructed us to please be seated. And then he said, you know, the juries always stand when they arrive. He said, you do not stand for the arrival of the judge, he said, but we are standing for you, the jury. And throughout the trial, whenever we entered the courtroom or departed, the bailiff would say, all rise for the jury there was, in all honesty, a sense of civic responsibility and even nobleness in the task we were undertaking. Because in the end, the experience was heartening. Because I would suggest to you that the system worked faithfully and with integrity. But, did we discover the truth? Well, those 11 affable people, and one particularly, pain in the rear, and I'll talk more about that in a moment, we did our best to discern the truth, a truth that surely hung straight and true, just like that lamp in the ship's cabin. But each one of the 12 of us carried into that journey, into that jury room, the tilted perspectives and baggage of our own cabins and we listened to the tilted perspectives of the prosecution and the defense. Now, I'm going to tell you, the prosecution laid out a formidable case. There was a taped confession where the defendant said what had happened and confessed to it. Witnesses that attested to the fact that the defendant was looking for the victim over dispute about stolen tools. Remember that. The coroner, and the forensic evidence was fascinating, testified that the victim had been struck multiple times with a blunt object, likely a two by four. The photos were hideous. The public defender didn't have much to work with and thus she appeared to be less prepared than the state's attorney, but she wasn't. And i didn't tell you that midway through the trial after the state rested its case, it seemed clear the defendant was guilty. You almost wondered why go on. But in our system, all parties are to be heard. Well, when the public defender began her defense, she lifted up the fact that all of the state's witnesses that had testified, that is, the witnesses against the defendant, had all said that the defendant was looking for the victim over those stolen tools. However, in the taped confession, which we had already seen, the defendant says in the confession that the dispute was over a drug deal. The defendant testifies in that, that the police told him, that is, he testified in court, that the police told him to say it was about a drug deal and not about the stolen tools. Well, naturally, his defense attorney said, why would you do that? And he said, because the only witness to the murder, the person who never testified and we never saw, was the defendant's wife. And the defendant said that the police told him that unless he changed his story from stolen tools to a drug deal, they would charge his wife with murder as well. And his son would be without a parent. Huh. Well, if Herman Melville is right, that the truth always hangs straight and true, was it the state's or the defendant's ship that was more askew? I mean, lots of other facts were open to interpretation, and I will tell you, finally, the defendant and all those who testified, even the state's witnesses, testified to the remorse of the defendant. Finally came the judge's instructions to the jury, and I won't go through them, but they were fair and clear, and they laid out three propositions, all of which had to be, we had to, beyond a reasonable doubt, agree to all three of them and if we didn't agree to all three of them unanimously the defendant was to be found not guilty we were stalled for hours 11 to 1 and the one juror refused to even affirm the proposition that the defendant performed the act that led to the victim's death The defendant had testified that yes, he had done that, but the juror still refused to budge. And it doesn't matter why, but I'll tell you, she finally revealed to us the baggage that was tilting her cabin to the truth. So there we sat, stuck, stuck on the without any truth. And you know what we did? They had told us to prepare for this. We read books or magazines. One juror read a biography of Dennis Rodman, another juror who sat across from me was reading a book this thick. I asked him about it, he said he was reading it for the eighth time on how to play competitive poker. Eventually we made our way again through the three propositions, and then the gentleman with whom whom I sat next to, who was an African-American and an NPR producer, summed up the case with a remarkable statement. And he said, I believe the defendant is guilty, but I also believe that the police bent the truth and were trying to frame a guilty man. Trying to frame a guilty man. He was right, both truths were angled to the one that hangs straight and true. We convicted the defendant of first-degree murder, which meant, we didn't know this, that this remorseful defendant in a fight over stolen tools was going to prison for 20 years without the possibility of parole. It was a sobering moment. It was troubling. So here's why I've been thinking about it 18 years later. The defendant had already served two years in Cook County Jail, so he is either free or about to be free. So how does all of this, a juror in a secular courtroom, relate to a life of faith? First I tell you, it was profoundly spiritual. Profoundly spiritual to raise our right hands at the beginning of the case, of the trial, and to swear on the living God that we would seek to be impartial. I mean, that really was powerful my wife who used to be a clerk for a federal judge said it's probably unconstitutional but nonetheless it was still profound and we discovered we discovered obviously that we were never going to know exactly what had happened we were never going to know exactly the truth that surely hung straight and true but that we were trying to decide which cabin was less askew still we believed unanimously and believe it beyond a reasonable doubt that there was truth to be discerned even if that truth would never be known fully. And that, my friends, is what a life of faith is about as well. You and I, we will never fully know God's mind in this life. Yes, as persons of faith, we seek God's truth. But we do not claim that we know God's truth. We cannot claim to know God's truth, because each and every one of our lives is angled to that one truth that hangs straight and true. Our lives are angled angled by our self-centeredness, by necessity, by survival. But we do affirm that God's truth hangs straight as it did as the lamp did in the ship's room. So the challenge is not, not to bend that lamp to the relativism of our world, but to seek as faithfully to orient our lives to the truth that hangs straight. And it is in Jesus we claim that God's truth is made flesh. That God's truth is love, And scripture witnesses in plenty of places that one of the divine forms of love is forgiveness. So the question for those of us on that jury 18 years ago was, will we, beyond a reasonable doubt, know if we have done the truth? Well, it has been 18 years. The defendant has or is about to have completed serving his time. And you know what? If his heart is changed, if he is still remorseful, will we, as a society, offer him a glimpse of God's truth? And that glimpse of God's truth is a fresh start and forgiveness. And I think if we do, then we will have lived a glimpse of that truth that hangs straight from the ceiling of the ship. And I will tell you, that is a truth I prayed for then and pray for still.